What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, the Biden Inauguration Edition, we take a look at the following stories. What does the FinCEN enforcement action against Capital One mean for compliance? Jacqueline Jagger in Compliance Week, Matt Kelly on Radical Compliance, Tom and Matt on Compliance into the Weeds. The OFAC Year in Review, Mike Volkoff takes a deep dive in corruption, crime, and compliance. The Boeing Fraud Enforcement Action, Tom takes a deep dive in FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog, Dylan Tokar on Wall Street Journal's Risk and Compliance Journal. It's Poaching Now Illegal, Paul Weiss Lawyers on, or in rather, NYU's Compliance and Enforcement blog. The Wells Fargo ex-General Counsel Spanked, Jacqueline Jagger in Compliance Week, the UAE to fight money laundering. Jonathan Roush returns in Dipping Through Geometries. Are more Caremark claims coming? Kevin LaCroix explores in the DNO Diary. How boards can promote better leadership in the Harvard Law School on Governance. Take a look at podcast, uh, episode three of the Compliance Life with Gwen Hassan. We review this week's offerings on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program and upcoming events, all on This Week in FCP. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for our live stream version of This Week in FCPA. Uh, Jay, as we move from the worst and most corrupt president of all time to the Biden administration, uh, and you and Rebecca celebrated a very important uh, event in your daughter's life, which I hope you'll tell us about. Um, we're back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. So, you want to tell us a little bit about the big celebration this weekend at uh, Shea Rosen? Sure. Thanks, Tom. Uh, this past weekend, my twin daughters, Michaela and Millie, uh, had their benot mitzvah. Benot means plural of b'nai, which is one. And it is basically a ceremony to mark their ascension into the adult part of the Jewish community. Uh, the girls did an amazing job. They both gave uh, their interpretations of the Bible reading for the week. And we had a little prayer. We had a little wine and a little bit of dancing. And the only thing that was missing was having folks in person. We did the event via Zoom, but um, Tom, we're glad you could uh, tune in. And I uh, have to tell Millie and Michaela that they'll have to listen to the replay because uh, they were the opening up of This Week in FCPA, episode 236. So Tom, why don't we jump right in? What's already? So Jay, um, I wanted to talk about, uh, for our first story, the FinCEN enforcement action involving Capital One and what it means for compliance. This was a $390 million enforcement action uh, with a credit of $100 million previously paid by Cap One. And Cap One was found uh, basically negligent for not having an effective compliance program. Um, 
this is something that is rel- is would be new to the FCPA world. So I think compliance practitioners need to pay particular attention to this. Uh, one of the things compliance professionals have not been graded on previously was the effectiveness of their compliance program. If you had a best practices compliance program and something happened, well, if you cleaned it up through remediation, that may be good enough. I don't think that's going to be good enough anymore. And in the SEC certainly can look at the effectiveness of an internal of internal controls under its FCPA mandate, where you do not need to have a uh, allegation of bribery and corruption. But it would be new if the Department of Justice started looking at uh, the civil side of FCPA enforcement by mandating that you demonstrate uh, you having an effective compliance program. So, really interesting uh, action. Uh, I wrote about it. Um, Matt Kelly and I talked about it on Radical Compliance, um, and uh, Jacqueline Jager uh, wrote about it in Compliance Week. So we, of course, have linked to these, and uh, check it out uh, in the show notes. Uh, Thanks, Tom. Next up, we have something from our good friend Mike Volkov. He takes a deep dive in his Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog, two-part series taking a look at the OFAC year in review, and I'll give you a couple highlights. In the face of the pandemic challenges, OFAC enforcement almost across the board continued with some significant expectations relating to individual criminal enforcement. Despite the challenges facing OFAC during the pandemic and the strain on resources, OFAC continued its dogged commitment to sanctions enforcement. While the numbers racked up by OFAC were lower because of the pandemic, later in the year it resumed its aggressive pace of sanctions. OFAC is poised to have a big enforcement year in 2021. With the transition to the Biden administration, economic sanctions enforcement is very likely to increase even more, especially with respect to Russian Russia sanctions. The OFAC enforcement headline is very clear. Much more to come. Here are the numbers for 2020. OFAC reported 16 enforcement actions with a total of 24 million in penalties, It's a drop from 2019 when OFAC reported 26 enforcement actions along with almost 1.3 billion in penalties. OFAC continued to rack up actions against major companies in 2020, such as Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway suffered OFAC enforcement actions and the consequent reputational damage. Here's the eccentric case. The most important enforcement action was the Justice Department's action against Eccentra FCE, a subsidiary of a UK company. The first enforcement action against a corporate entity for violating the North Korean sanctions program. The Justice Department's appearance in this important case underscore the likely trend of DOJ's involvement in the voluntary disclosure process and sanctions violations. Here are some themes that Mike picked up and he addresses in part two of his blog. Most cases fall into one of four categories. First category is basic screening and blocking errors. In 2018, Cole Metallic's case, and then in 2019, when Apple violated the Narcotics Kingpin Sanctions Program because its screening program did not distinguish between full capitalization entry of a counterparty and the proper initial capitalization on the prohibited persons list. Next up would be post-acquisition illegal sales. 
In 2019, OFAC had five separate enforcement actions focused on mergers and acquisitions in which companies acquired foreign companies that continued to engage in business while in violation of OFAC sanctions. OFAC brought an enforcement action against Keysight Technologies for sales to Iran after its acquisition of Anite Finland, a foreign company which was not subject to OFAC sanctions at the time, but became so after it was acquired by Keysight. The third category would be third-party sanction violations. In this case of OFAC enforcement, or rather FCPA enforcement, OFAC regularly uncovers use of third-party agents and distributors who carry out sanction evasion schemes. Comtech Technology and its subsidiary, EF Data, paid $494,000 for violations of the Sudan sanctions program. Comtech enlisted a third party in Canada to sell an advanced communication system to the Sudanese government entity in violation of the Sudan sanctions program. And last, reliance on improper advice and counsel. OFAC had three separate enforcement actions against Whitford, Biomed, and Deutsche Bank, in which lawyers or compliance officers provided incorrect advice to the company on specific issues concerning compliance and sanction. Tom, back to you. Jay, uh, next up, we have the Boeing enforcement action. And um, this was a fraud against the U.S. government around Boeing lying to the government to garner approval of the 737 MAX uh, uh, plane. And of course, that led to two horrific crashes uh, and a variety of, of uh, other problems for Boeing. The uh, enforcement action, although a fraud risk management enforcement action or a fraud enforcement action, really has a lot of interesting uh points for the compliance professional, and I've been exploring it this week uh, in a deep dive uh, blog post series. Uh, also, Dylan Tokar over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal uh, wrote about the basic facts of the case as well. And what I found uh, most interesting, Jay, was a couple of things. Number one, that Boeing created a board-level committee for basically product safety. You might think a transportation company would have done that uh, already, but they hadn't. But it's broader than simply product safety. It's also how you interact with regulators. So now we're going to have board oversight of Boeing's interaction with, with its regulators. That's a little bit new wrinkle. Also, there was a um, attachment C, which uh, DPA, FCPA, DPAs, aficionados, will recognize is the attachment that always attaches the corporate compliance program, which the respondent agrees to, here, here Boeing. And it was, once again, focused on fraud, but it had a couple of interesting uh, little twists that I think uh, was every compliance practitioner needs to uh, understand. So when it came to uh, tone at the top, uh, management was required to actually uh, not only model the behavior, but ensure that there's strong, explicit, and visible support for the right tone. And that uh, this visibility, I think, uh, was an interesting component. Uh, it required the what they call senior executives reporting or heading up fraud prevention had to report to uh, direct report to internal audit, company's board, or appropriate designee of the board. 
The company had to ensure its training was tailored and effective, and discipline had to be uh, delivered regardless of position or perceived importance of the employee. It also mandated not only remediation of any violations of Boeing's uh, policies and procedures around fraud risk, but also a root cause analysis, which looked at all corporate functions. So um, some really interesting lessons for the uh, ABC compliance practitioner. Once again, I'm taking a deep dive into it, so you can read the uh, DPA, but you can also uh, check out my blog for a bit of an analysis on the importance to the compliance professional. So next up, we ask the question, is poaching now? This comes to us from a group of lawyers from Paul Weiss and from the NYU Compliance Enforcement Blog. The Antitrust Division of the U.S. Department of Justice recently announced the first criminal indictment for a no-poach and wage-fixing agreements. These indictments follow a change in policy announced by the DOJ several years ago to pursue such violations as criminal matters and not merely civil violations. Companies with antitrust programs should consider reflecting in their training programs and monitoring mechanisms the DOJ stance that naked no-poach or wage-fixing agreements are subject to criminal prosecution, and might also consider instituting methods to identify and evaluate such agreements. The indictment announced on January 7th, Surgical Care Affiliates and a successor entity, together SCA, were charged with two counts of violating the Sherman Antitrust Act for, for allegedly entering into two separate agreements with other named, unnamed companies to engage in a per se unlawful conspiracy to suppress competition between them for the services of senior level employees by agreeing not to solicit each other's senior level employees. According to the indictment, SCA and the other companies were owned and operated uh, outpatient medical care facilities across the U.S. and were competitors in the recruitment and retention of senior level employees across the U.S. Companies with antitrust compliance programs should consider reflecting in their training programs and monitoring mechanism the DOJ stance that naked no-poach or wage-fixing agreements are subject to criminal prosecution. For example, companies could provide antitrust compliance training on no-poach and wage-fixing agreements, especially for employees with responsibilities that touch on recruitment and retention of employees and human resources personnel. Companies might also consider instituting methods to identify and evaluate such agreements. This is especially wise in light of the DOJ's policy announced in 2019 of allowing credit for antitrust compliant programs and charging stage criminal investigations. Indeed, the DOJ's guidance accompanying the announcement of this policy specifically references the HR function in its discussion of the importance of effective risk assessments, and the design and comprehensiveness of corporate compliance programs. Sure, Jay. Our next story is about uh, yet more punishment for ex-Wells Fargo executives. In this um, case, it's the uh, Wells Fargo ex-general counsel who has been pub uh, punished. Uh, he was sanctioned by the Securities and Exchange Commission. The article comes from our good friend Jacqueline Jager at Compliance Week with $3.5 million fine. Interestingly, in the order, it's, um, it's not really name and shame, but it's certainly shame. And uh, if he's working for uh, a financial institution, he's got to take this order to them now. 
if he's uh, interviewing with a financial institution, he's got to give them this order. Or if he goes to work for a financial institution, he's got to give them a copy of the order. So uh, he has to make uh, any potential employer or current employer um, aware of his transgressions at uh, Wells Fargo. He's yet another executive. Of course, John Stump, the former CEO, uh, was fined $17.5 million, so obviously less for the lawyer. Sorry, guys. But Kerry uh, 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 Toadstat is uh, still fighting any charges, uh, civil or criminal, against her. But one more uh, just com- um, factoid around the corruption and abysmal culture at Wells Fargo under the tenure of John Stump, where eight was great. All right. Well, next up, we've got a story from our good friend John Rush in his very, always interesting Dipping Through Geometries blog site. Uh, today, John's going to give us an update on how the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and their continuing money laundering fight. I mean, the Arab Emirates take steps to money laundering. Over the past year, the UAE has been the focus of sustained public criticism for failure to adopt and implement effective anti-money laundering measures. In April of last year, the Financial Action Task Force issued a mutual evaluation report that acknowledged significant improvements that the UAE had made to its anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing system in recent years, but they also noted that the risks of criminals being able to misuse legal persons in the UAE for ML and TF remains high. More recently, the United Kingdom's Treasury and Home Office issued a national risk assessment on money laundering and terrorist financing that described the UAE as, quote, an attractive location for those who also wish to launder the proceeds of crime from abroad, overwhelmingly foreign nationals using the UAE systems rather than the Emirati nationals themselves, close quote. In face of these criticisms, in the last four months, the UAE has undertaken additional steps to improve its AML-CFT regime. First, on September 25th of last year, the UAE central bank stated that to mitigate the risk of financial crimes, banks are urged to put more efforts towards combating money laundering and financing terrorism. Second, the UAE Ministry of Economy announced the development of a strategic plan to support efforts to combat money laundering practices within the UAE, as well as the establishment of anti-money laundering departments within the ministry. Third, the UAE Minister of Justice issued a series of ministerial resolutions to set up federal courts and four emirates to handle money laundering cases. And finally, fourth, The Minister of Justice also announced that 200 law firms in the UAE had failed to comply with AML procedures and were suspended for practicing for a month. These suspensions were were to be lifted once the firms fulfilled their obligations. These measures in total indicate that the UAE appears to be making genuine efforts to improve its anti-money laundering systems and the country will need to sustain that commitment in the coming year to continue to bring the system back to its maturity. So, Jay, our next story involves uh, Caremark and uh, Kevin LaCroix on the always great DNO Diary asks, are more Caremark claims coming? And Caremark is the standard by which a company must have a compliance program and the board's obligation around that compliance program. 
Kevin goes through really the, the last four cases which dealt with Caremark, and he finds that um, there's an expanding obligation under Caremark. And if you follow these four cases, you're well aware of them, uh, but boards now have an affirmative duty to oversee compliance programs. And this is something that uh, really every compliance practitioner needs to, to counsel his board on, that they have a role, uh, not just learning about anti-corruption uh, or anti-bribery or the FCPA, but they actually have to oversee the compliance program. And it's uh, getting closer to the um, requirement that the board have a, a formal compliance committee. We're not quite there yet, but we're almost there. Something I've been advocating for quite some time. And Jay, if you'll think back to my remarks in the uh, Boeing uh, settlement, where Boeing uh, now has a product safety uh, board committee, because that's viewed as high risk to Boeing. In the Marchand case, for instance, it was a food production company, Bluebell Ice Cream, and they didn't uh, discuss uh, the safety of the food products at the board level. And the Delaware Supreme Court was fairly aghast at that, that their highest risk as a food, food product company was food safety, and they weren't even discussing that. So you see the uh, where the courts are going on this. This is not the SEC. This is not the Department of Justice. This is <clears throat> civil uh, liability and civil litigation. One of the things that um, Kevin points out is that uh, one of the reasons that these suits are having more success is there's a specific procedure in uh, Delaware uh, code that allows shareholders to do basically pre-suit discovery to determine if there is a viable or justiciable claim. And uh, this has led to companies having to produce a lot of documents when there's no lawsuit, which of course gives the plaintiffs more information. So um, this is, uh, I think, something that's the growing trend. Every board needs to be aware of it. Every compliance professional needs to be aware of it. And as we move forward, I think there's going to be a lot more need for compliance professionals on every board of directors. Thanks, Tom. In our last article, uh, we asked the question, are you an introverted compliance professional? Well, maybe not me, but now might be the time for you. Dick Kasten tells us more in his FCPA blog. One of the byproducts of our lockdown, socially distanced, mask-wearing, remote-working world is that introverts are starting to feel a bit more comfortable. They don't need to pretend to be part of the gregarious, fist-bumping, loud-talking in the crowd of corporate extroverts, and that's a big relief. Before the pandemic, work life was a world designed by and for extroverts. No wonder introverts couldn't hear themselves think. Now in the relative calm and quiet of our reordered work life, introverts can do what they do best, ask a lot of questions, listen intently and carefully to the answers, and think deeply and creatively about the way forward. To Dick, that sounds a lot like due diligence, risk assessment, operational planning, in other words, make way for the introverted compliance folks. And five decades before COVID-19, the corporate world tilted sharply toward extroverts. The ideas took hold that everyone in the business should be the life of the party, and every decision should be made by committee. During the past year, though, there's been a sharp tilt in the other direction. 
Introverts have an innate advantage these days in another way. They tend to like technology and handle it well. Others who have benefited from remote work are people with learning disabilities. Dick has a friend who suffers from a severe form of dyslexia, but working from home instead of in an open office fishbowl, he's now flourishing in his job. He has more confidence in his professional ability than ever, and he's cheerful instead of defeated. Now, Dick is not saying that the pandemic is a good thing. That's ridiculous. He also is not saying introverts are better people than anyone else. None of that's true. But sometimes quiet, reflective people are overlooked. That happened a lot in the corporate life before the pandemic, when the tilt was sharply toward extroverts. It's a different world now, and introverts, including introverted compliance officers, can quietly welcome this particular change. So, Tom, we're in the month of December, and uh, who did you speak to? Well, we know you're speaking with um, uh, Gwen Hassan for the Compliance Life, but what did she have to say in the third episode this month? I'm very sorry to tell you that we are not in the month of December. You've lost a month. Oh, no. Of January. <laughs> and in fact, we just had the inauguration on January 20 of Joe Biden as president of the United States. So I don't know if you've been pulling a Rip Van Winkle or I hope you didn't miss the holiday season uh, on behalf of your family. But uh, we're actually in the month of January. Okay. At that point aside, uh, yes, I have Gwen Hassan this week on The Compliant Life. And uh, Gwen, uh, I, I love these because you find out so much about people you didn't know. Well, Gwen had uh, actually lived overseas, and she is incredibly culturally curious. She's interested about other cultures. She's interested to see um, what they have to say, what they think. And she really expanded on that to... Uh, a compliance officer, in her view, has to be culturally curious. And so uh, it was a very interesting, she explored uh, various parameters of that and talked about how her cultural curiosity and her, indeed, her full curiosity really, in, she, in her mind, helped her in her uh, compliance journey. So uh, it was really interesting. I just love these series. You find out these things about people that uh, you really never knew before. So, Tom, I heard it's the month of January. Is that true? It is. Well, why don't you tell us about what happened this week on 31 Days to a more effective compliance program? Well, Jay, I'm doing uh, literally 31 consecutive business days to a more compliant, uh, more effective compliance program. And over the past week, on uh, January 16th, I looked at the third-party risk management process. On January 17th, managing your third parties. On January 18th, do uh, levels of due diligence where I was able to uh, talk about an interview of one of our good friends, Candace Tao, on the levels of due diligence on uh, December, excuse me, January 19th. Uh, I was able now, to. Now uh, you're doing it too. Yeah, you gave it to me. <laughs> the investigation protocol, day 20, the inaugural day. We looked at um, uh, how do you respond to investigative findings? In other words, how do you remediate? Then um, on the 21st, we looked at continuous improvement, and on the 22nd, we concluded the week with internal reporting. Next week will be my final week on uh, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. I've run this series now for the end of next week. It'll be 14 months, so uh, we're going to uh, uh, have a special week next week with a special announcement. So uh, I hope you will check out the series uh, through January 31, 2021. Great. So Tom has a couple webinars he'd like to invite you to on January 27th. 
Please join K2 Integrity to hear Olivia Allison and Joanne Taylor discuss the latest EU regulatory developments and whistleblowing programs and investigations. Information and registrations are, of course, in the show notes. And Compliance Week is accepting nominations for its Excellence and Compliance Award. And there's a link on the show notes to submit your nominees. Uh, in case you'd like to reach Tom, he is the Compliance Evangelist, and he can be reached at fox at tfoxlaw.com. And uh, as you know, even though I still think it's this is Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and I can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. On behalf of Tom Fox and myself, Jay Rosen, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 236 for the week ending January 22nd, 2001, the Biden inauguration edition. Uh, we're glad you can join us. And uh, next week, we will look forward to joining you again. And in the interim, please stay safe, safe and healthy, and we'll talk to you soon. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to This Week in FCPA. So Jay and I will uh, probably take this format into 2021 uh, for the rest of the year. We're also doing this on Compliance Into the Weeds with Matt Kelly, and we're going to extend it to the Everything Compliance Gang. So get ready for some great video uh, podcast in 2021, all courtesy of the Compliance Podcast Network. We've linked to all of the articles in the show notes, so please uh, check them out. I know you will find them very interesting and useful going forward. As I mentioned, uh, This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.